0: All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton standing in the confessional corner with you this week, looking at what we consider from the small catechism the fifth chief part of the Christian faith. But as we look at the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, we jump all the way back to page 649, Appendix B, A Brief Exhortation to Confession. Now, we jump here because this is the place where confession absolution is talked about by Luther in this version of the confessions. Now, we'll take a special look at the note on that page. The exhortation first appeared in the 1529 revised edition of the Large Catechism. However, it did not appear in the original 1580 German and 1584 Latin editions of the Book of Concord. There, it was not included by Dow and Benti in the Concordia Triglata. We have included it here since readers are used to having it from other editions of the Book of Concord. So we have here one that was in basically, we would call the second edition of the Large Catechism, as Luther revised things a little bit, added this on to the end of the Large Catechism. But it was not in the 18 or the 1580 or the 1584 editions of the Book of Concord that were accepted by the Lutheran princes. But again, it is important for us to know these things. So we're looking at it this week. Here now follows an exhortation to confession. We have always urged that confession should be voluntary and that the Pope's tyranny should cease. As a result, we are now rid of his coercion and set free from the intolerable load and burden that he laid upon Christendom. As we all know from experience, there had been no rule so burdensome as the one that forced everyone to go to confession on pain of committing the most serious of mortal sins. That law also placed on consciences the heavy burden and torture of having to list all kinds of sin so that no one was ever able to confess perfectly enough. The worst was that no one taught or even knew what confession might be or what help and comfort it could give. Instead, it was turned into sheer terror and a hellish torture that one had to go through even if one detested confession more than anything. These three oppressive things have now been lifted, and we have been granted the right to go to confession freely, under no pressure of coercion or fear. Also, we are released from the torture of needing to list all sins in detail. Besides this, we have the advantage of knowing how to make a beneficial use of confession for the comfort and strengthening of our consciences. No rule, no vow of any religious order had been so burdensome as what seemingly seems to be the simple rule of you have to go to confession once a year to be able to be seen as a committed Christian and be able to receive communion during the following year. But if you did not follow this rule, you were now committing the absolute worst sin Possibly, some would even argue, the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. But the problem is, no one taught what confession was. They simply said and demanded that you list every sin that you have done since the last time you were at confession. Which is an impossible task. And that is what made the heavy burden and the toil and the fear and the hatred of confession and absolution because it was i have to make sure that my confession is complete but also as i've had uh, numerous classmates in seminary who were raised roman catholic also say that you also had to make it interesting for the priest because If he didn't think your confession was good enough, he would pry and poke and try to see if there were more and more sins that he could bring out of you. That's not the point of confession, as we'll see throughout this exhortation. It is not to burden us more fully with our sins, but it is there to relieve us of our sins. It is there to give us comfort, not to torture us. So we pick up in paragraph five. Everyone is now aware of this, but unfortunately people have learned it only too well. They do as they please and apply their freedom wrongfully as if it meant that they ought not or must not go to confession. For we readily understand whatever is to our advantage, and we find it especially easy to take in whatever is mild and gentle in the gospel. But, as I have said, such pigs should not be allowed near the gospel, nor have any part of it. They should stay under the Pope and let themselves continue to be driven and pestered to confess, to fast, and so on. For whoever does not want to believe the gospel, live according to it, and do what a Christian ought to be doing, should not enjoy any of its benefits either. Imagine their wanting to enjoy only the benefits without accepting any of the responsibilities or investing anything of themselves. What sort of thing is that? We do not want to make preaching available for that sort, nor to grant permission that our freedom and its enjoyment be opened up to them. Instead, we will let the Pope and the likes of him take over and force them to his will, genuine tyrant that he is. The rabble that will not obey the gospel, Second Thessalonians 1, eight, deserves nothing else than the kind of jailer who is God's devil and hangman. But to others who gladly hear the gospel, we must keep on preaching, admonishing, encouraging, and coaxing them not to forget the precious and comforting treasure offered in the gospel. Therefore, we here intend to say also a few words about confession in order to instruct and admonish the uninformed. So this is what the point is of the brief exhortation, is to say a few words, to instruct about what confession truly is, and to admonish those who have not been informed, who are still under the thrall of the Pope and his hellish torture, that he has made confession absolution. So let's get into the instruction, beginning in verse eight, or paragraph 8. In the first place, I have said that besides the confession here being considered, there are two other kinds, which may even more properly be called the Christian's common confession. They are A, the confession and plea for forgiveness made to God alone, and B, the confession that is made to the neighbor alone. These two kinds of confession are included in the Lord's Prayer, in which we pray, Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and so on. In fact, the entire Lord's Prayer is nothing else than such a confession. For what are our petitions other than a confession that we neither have nor do what we ought, as well as a plea for grace and a cheerful conscience? Confession of this sort should and must continue without let up as long as we live. For the Christian way essentially consists in acknowledging ourselves to be sinners and in praying for grace. So what is the first thing that we must know? We must know that there are two other kinds of confessions, not just the confession before the priest, but the confession we make in our personal prayers to God alone and the confession we make to our neighbors who we have sinned against. But all of these are included in The Lord's Prayer especially, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But also, the entire Lord's Prayer is a confession that we do not have and we do not do what we ought. Therefore, as we look through the Lord's Prayer, I talked about the Lord's Prayer being a prayer asking for us to be able to keep the Ten Commandments and to believe the Creed. Because we cannot do either one of them perfectly by ourselves. Luther continues in paragraph 10. Similarly, the other of the two confessions, the one that every Christian makes to his neighbor, is also included in the Lord's Prayer. For here we mutually confess our guilt and our desire for forgiveness to one another, James 5, 16, Before 16, before coming to God and begging for His forgiveness, Matthew 523 24 Now all of us are guilty of sinning against one another. Therefore we may and should publicly confess this before everyone without shrinking in one another's presence. For what the proverb says is true, if anyone is perfect, then all are. There is no one at all who fulfills his obligations toward God and his neighbor. Romans 310 12 Besides such universal guilt, there is also the particular guilt of the person who has provoked another to rightful anger and needs to ask his pardon. So we have in the Lord's Prayer a double absolution. There we are forgiven both our offenses against God and those against our neighbor. And there we forgive our neighbor and become reconciled to him. Now we get to paragraph 13 and 14 to talk about what most people consider confession. Besides this public, daily, and necessary confession, there is also the confidential confession that is only made before a single brother. If something particular weighs upon us or troubles us, something with which we keep torturing ourselves and can find no rest, and we do not find our faith to be strong enough to cope with it, then this private form of confession gives us the opportunity of laying the matter before some brother. We may receive counsel, comfort, and strength when and however often we wish. That we should do this is not included in any divine command, as are the other two kinds of confession. Rather, it is offered to anyone who may need it, as opportunity to be used by him as his need requires. The origin and establishment of private confession lies in the fact that Christ himself placed his absolution into the hands of his Christian people with the command that they should absolve one another of their sins, Ephesians 4.32. So any heart that feels its sinfulness and desires consolation has here a sure refuge when he hears God's word and makes the discovery that God, through a human being, looses and absolves him from his sins. So now we have what is considered private confession absolution, which is a very wonderful blessing, which is what the confession was to be in the beginning to the priest, but that got changed into the torture that it was. What was it again? The opportunity of laying the matter before some brother, that we may receive counsel, comfort, and strength when and however often we wish. This is the part of confession that we need to understand. That yes, we have the corporate confession and absolution in the congregation at the beginning of the divine service, which is great and wonderful and works well. But When there are times where we need that assurance that this particular sin that troubles us is forgiven, that we may go to someone, a father confessor, and lay that out, have him absolve us so that we may continue on with our life, free from that weight, free from that burden, not having more piled on as was done in Rome, but Being having it lifted off and saying it no longer exists anymore. That is the great thing that separates us from the evangelicals as Lutherans, is that most evangelicals don't understand that God has allowed human beings to be his mouthpiece to absolve sins. That was one of the things that first got me, first time I got first time I was at a Lutheran worship service is the idea that this guy up in front of the congregation in a robe can tell me that he can forgive my sins. That was a challenge for me, but with understanding from John chapter 20 and from Ephesians chapter 4, yes, that certainly does make sense. All right, we continue on in paragraph 15. So notice then that confession, as I have often said, consists of two parts. The first is my own work in action when I lament my sins and desire comfort and refreshment for my soul. The other part is a work that God does when he declares me free from my sin through his word placed in the mouth of a man. It is this splendid, noble thing that makes confession so lovely, so comforting. It used to be that we emphasized it only as our work. All that we were then concerned about was whether our act of confession was pure and perfect in every detail. We paid no attention to the second and most necessary part of confession, nor did we proclaim it. We acted just as if confession were nothing but a good work by which payment was made to God, so that if the confession was inadequate and not exactly correct in every detail, then the absolution would not be valid and the sin unforgiven. By this, the people were driven to the point where everyone had to despair of making so pure a confession an obvious impossibility, and where no one could feel at ease in his conscience or have confidence in his absolution. So they not only rendered the precious confession useless to us, but also made it a bitter burden, Matthew 23, 4, causing noticeable spiritual harm and ruin. So here we have in the Roman Church, especially of the Dark Ages, Middle Ages, we have this reversal of what is important. The most important thing in the Roman Church today, as well as throughout its history, has been the act of confession, that your confession is pure enough, that your confession is perfect enough. Where Jesus gave to the disciples and we rediscover in the gospel and the Reformation is that that's the least part of it. The greatest part of it, the most necessary part of it, is hearing the words that your sin is forgiven. Not because you do so many Hail Marys or Our Fathers or do some other work, but because Jesus has said through his servant, I forgive you all your sins. We continue in paragraph 18. In our view of confession, therefore, we should sharply separate its two parts far from each other. We should place slight value on our part in it, but we should hold in high and great esteem God's word in the absolution part of confession. We should not proceed as if we intended to perform and offer him a splendid work, but simply to accept and receive something from him. You dare not come saying how good or how bad you are. If you are a Christian, I, in any case, know well enough that you are. If you are not, I know that even better. But what you must see is that when you lament your problem and that you let yourself be helped to acquire a cheerful heart and conscience. Moreover, no one may now pressure you with commandments. Rather, what we say is this. Whoever is a Christian or would like to be one is here faithfully advised to go and get the precious treasure. If you are no Christian and do not desire such comfort, we shall leave it to another to use force on you. By eliminating all need for the Pope's tyranny, command, and coercion, we cancel them with a single sweep. As I have said, we teach that whoever does not go to confession willingly, and for the sake of obtaining the absolution, he may as well forget about it. Yes, and whoever goes around relying on the purity of his act of making confession, let him stay away. Nevertheless, we strongly urge you by all means to make confession of your need, not with the intention of doing a worthy work by confessing, but in order to hear that God has arranged for you to be told. What I am saying is that you are to concentrate on the word, on the absolution, to regard it as a great and precious and magnificently splendid treasure, and to accept it with all praise and thanksgiving to God. If this were explained in detail, and if the need that ought to move and lead us to make confession were pointed out, then one would need little urging or coercion. For everyone's own conscience would so drive and disturb him that he would be glad to do what a poor and miserable beggar does when he hears that a rich gift of money or clothing is being handed out at a certain place. So as not to miss it, he would run there as fast as he can and would need no bailiff to beat him and drive him on. Now suppose that in place of the invitation one were to substitute a command to the effect that all beggars should run to that place, but would not say why, or mention what they should look for and receive there. What else would the beggar do but make the trip with distaste, without thinking of going to get a gift, but simply of letting people see what a poor, miserable beggar he is? This would bring him little joy and comfort, but only greater resentment against the command that was issued." in this way the pope's preachers kept silent in the past about the splendid gift and inexpressible treasure to be had through confession all they did was to drive people in crowds to confession with no further aim than to let them see what impure dirty people they were who would go willingly to confession under such circumstances we, however, do not say that people should look at you to see how filthy you are, using you as a mirror to preen themselves. Rather, we give this counsel. If you are poor and miserable, then go to confession and make use of its healing medicine. He who feels his misery and need will no doubt develop such a longing for it that he will run toward it with joy. But those who pay no attention to it and do not come of their own accord, we let them go their way. Let them be sure of this, however, that we do not regard them as Christians." This long section here has really been not much to have to explain because it is very self-explanatory, as Luther is talking about. Not going because we are coerced, but going because we know what we are there to receive. Not as though, as he mentions, the beggar being commanded to go to some place without any understanding or knowledge of what it is to happen there. But we know what happens. We receive the word of the Lord. Forgiving us our sins. Therefore, we should run there to receive it as often as we need it. So let's finish up with paragraphs 28 to 35. So we teach what a splendid, precious, and comforting thing confession is. Furthermore, we urge people not to despise a blessing that in view of our great need is so priceless. Now, if you are a Christian, then you do not need either my pressuring or the Pope's orders, but you will undoubtedly compel yourself to come to confession and will beg me for a share in it. However, if you want to despise it and proudly continue without confession, then we must draw the conclusion that you are no Christian and should not enjoy the sacrament either. For you despise what no Christian should despise. In that way, you make it so that you cannot have forgiveness of your sins. This is a sure sign that you also despise the gospel. To sum it up, we want to have nothing to do with coercion. However, if someone does not listen or t- to or follow our preaching and its warning, we will have nothing to do with him, 1 Corinthians 5, 11, Nor may he have any share in the gospel. If you were a Christian, then you ought to be happy to run more than 100 miles to confession and not let yourself be urged to come. You should rather come and compel us to give you the opportunity. For in this matter, the compulsion must be the other way around. We must act under orders. You must come in freedom. We pressure no one, but we let ourselves be pressured just as we let people compel us to preach, to administer the sacrament. When I urge you to go to confession, I am doing nothing else than urging you to be a Christian. If I have brought you to the point of being a Christian, I have thereby also brought you to confession. For those who really desire to be true Christians, to be rid of their sins, and to have a cheerful conscience already possess the true hunger and thirst. They reach for the bread, just as Psalm 42:1 says of a hunted deer burning in the heat with thirst. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. In other words, as a deer with anxious and trembling eagerness strains towards a fresh flowing stream, so I yearn anxiously and trembling for God's word, absolution, the sacrament, and so forth. See, that would be teaching right about confession, and people could be given such a desire and love for it that they would come and run after us for it more than we would like. Let the papists plague and torment themselves and others who pass up the treasure and exclude themselves from it. Let us, however, lift our hands in praise and thanksgiving to God, 1 Timothy 2.8, for having graciously brought us to this our understanding of confession. So far the exhortation to confession. But here we have... Luther saying that there is compulsion in confession. And it's not the pastor compelling the people to come and make confession. It is the people coming and compelling the pastor to hear the confession. We have this in the small catechism as it very clearly begins the short form of confession by saying, dear confessor, I ask you please to hear my confession and to pronounce forgiveness in order to fulfill God's will. What are we saying here? hear my confession. Give me absolution. That is the compulsion there, is the penitent coming to the pastor and saying, I want you to do your job of forgiving my sins and hearing my confession. This does not start off with the pastor saying, what kind of horrible, miserable sinner are you? It comes as the person saying, I am a poor, miserable sinner, and I want you, pastor, to do God's will by hearing my confession and forgiving me of my sins. That is the point of confession absolution, especially as we look at private confession absolution, not as a horrible, hellish torture, but as a comfort and a caring way for God to give us the forgiveness of our sins. All right, that's it for this week. I thank you for being here, standing in the confessional corner with me as we looked at the brief exhortation to confession. Next week, we begin looking at the sacrament of the altar from the small catechism and then from the large before we head into the last of the Lutheran confessions and the formula of Concord. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton, wishing you a great Easter blessings as we wrestle with the theologies around us today and always. Amen.